All right, welcome everybody. This is uh, part 36 of our verse-by-verse uh, -verse study through the Gospel of Mark, except right now we're doing like a, a side research path talking about infant salvation. In my previous video, I made a case, you know, that infants, if they die in that state of infancy or anybody who dies similarly um, handicapped in their awareness of morality and of God's creation, that they are given salvation by God. I had like seven steps in that case. And I think that that was a pretty strong case. I'll put it this way. I think that you can't build a stronger case for a different view. And so I think we should hold that view. So those who die as infants, you know, or like infants uh, who do not have moral awareness, they're not morally accountable for God and they go to heaven. That was the case that I built in that video. This teaching in particular is a follow-up to that video. Even though we're still in the Mark series, we're doing this little excursus on the topic of infant salvation. And there's a number of questions that come up naturally when you come to the conclusion that that all these babies go to, go to heaven, that they're all saved. Just like there's a number of questions that come up if you say something other than that. So this is the follow-up. This is the follow-up video. How you answer these questions uh, doesn't mean you you have to like abandon your view of the biblical case that they go to heaven. Rather, it's just like saying, and how do we process that? So here's an overview of the questions we're going to look at. Five issues in particular that I'm going to focus on today. One is, uh, how do we determine when a person is accountable? This is a question that came up in the comments section in that video, um, and I know it comes up in our hearts and minds. How do we determine when a person's accountable? And I sort of talked about it last week, but we'll get into it in more detail today. Also, what about sin nature? What role does sin nature have because the babies might not be accountable, but what about the sin nature that they've inherited from Adam? What about that? How do we square that with our theology? Uh, the third question is, what role does Jesus have in their salvation? Do these babies need Jesus, or are we saying that they're just saved and they don't really need the cross? And that, to me, is a pretty significant issue. And so we're going to deal with that as well. And number four, what about free will? We'll spend a little while on the topic of free will. Actually, uh, do, do infants ever make a choice to love God or to reject God? Um, how are all of them say, saved? If they're making a choice, why, why are they all saying yes? Or perhaps are you saying they're not making a choice? We're going to process through some of those things, some options on that. And then five, does this give people an excuse to commit abortion? This is actually a topic that came up a number of times in the comments as well as in private conversations on this. Does, does that mean that abortion is now okay because you're basically sending them to heaven? Now, that is what we're going to do. I will um, try to get timestamps after the fact, after I'm done teaching, into the video description and the first comment below, just so that you, you can click to where I start answering these individual questions in case you're interested in just one question and not the whole video, which is fine. It doesn't bother me at all. Let me give, though, first, by preface, a word on why I did this in two videos. This is important to me. I hope you'll pick up what I'm putting down. I did this in two videos for one major reason. I think I, I've built a strong biblical case for affirming with confidence that babies are going to be in heaven when they pass away. I do not think that how you answer these questions that I'm bringing to you today, I don't think that the answers to these questions should threaten that case because I didn't base it off of me having a tight philosophy of how I work all my theology together. I just said, let's take the scripture, let's let it say what it says, and let's apply this to the uh, the, the unborn who pass away or the, the young children who pass away or those who are similar similarly handicapped mentally. So I think that you can disagree on all the content in this video, and you can still affirm the case I made in the last video. So let's not confuse the two, because that will be the temptation, is to think, oh, I have to answer every question or else I can't hold to this. That's just not reality. That's not the world we live in. You don't have to answer every question to have good reasons to hold to something. That's a separate issue. So... Here we go. This is conjecture. This is the last thing I'll say. Conjecture warning. Total conjecture here. Some of the stuff I'm saying is like very much like maybe this. What about this? You might think this. You might think that. This is not like the tight. Here's exactly what the right answer is. And everyone should hold to this. That's not really what I'm saying today. I'm actually getting into conjecture. I'm getting into the gray territory of, hmm, how does this work out? Hmm, how do we answer this question? And I'm just going to try to help you process these things. So for theology nerds, and Bible geeks, this is interesting territory. Uh, for those who are interested in just the question of baby salvation, click the link in the video description for the playlist. Go watch the video on just baby salvation. That's what you want, not this video. So there, you have been warned. Conjecture ahead. Starting with our first set of conjecture. Oh, by the way, we're not doing questions today for this live stream. Um, I'm only going to occasionally do questions depending on the topic and if I think that'll be valuable for the final video or not. I know your questions are valuable, but... When I put your questions in front of thousands of other people, I have to ask if it's valuable for everybody or not. And for today, the answer, I think, is a no. And maybe in uh, future videos, we will. 
I will do more Q&A videos though on their own. That'll just be all about your questions. All right, how do we determine the age, the age of children, those who die in salvation? How old can they be and still die? Now, some, believe it or not, some say that we can determine the age and it's a specific age, like it's an actual date of a birthday and that's the 20th birthday. Now, some would be shocked to hear that, but there are those who will promote that this is a biblical teaching that on the 20th birthday, that is when someone becomes accountable. So let's look at why they say that. And we'll start with one of our Old Testament passages from last week, Deuteronomy 139, where God says to the children of Israel, to the people of Israel, about their little ones, he says, your little ones whom you said would become prey and your sons who this day have no knowledge of good or evil shall enter there and I will give it to them and they shall possess it. And the it, the thing they're going to possess, that's the, they're going to enter the promised land. But the generation of those who left Egypt, who rebelled against God in the wilderness, they're all going to die in the wilderness. Their kids will inherit the promised land, right? Well, as you read on in Deuteronomy, not in the exact context here, but as you read on a little bit further and you look at numbers as well, we see that those who inherit the land are those who are under the age of 20. That is, everyone who's 20 or older dies. Everyone who's under the age of 20, they live. So the case goes like this. The case goes like this. Hey, Mike, um, God says those little ones who have no knowledge of good and evil, that they are all those who enter the land. And so everyone who's 19 and under must be someone who has no knowledge of good or evil. This, this I mean, it sounds good. It sounds tight. Except here's the question. And, and this is, uh, we're going to... I'm going to be very specific here. So please note the specificity and observe this. God doesn't say anywhere in this verse, everyone who enters the land is one of these little ones. He doesn't say that. He just describes the little ones that they're complaining about, they're worried about as they're like, God, you brought us out here so that our wives would be taken captive and our children would be killed. And he mentions the children. They're going to enter the land. The ones you thought would be killed, they're going to enter the land. And so this is an affirmation of uh, a group of people that will enter the land. It's not a description of everyone who enters the land. That's the short response to this. Um, let me give you a scripture to support this. The original recording of all this is in actually Numbers 14 verse 3. Why is the Lord the complaint from the Israelites? Is Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become plunder. Would it, um, I guess they'll be plunder, not dead. Uh, would it not be better for us to return to Egypt? So the belief is, hey, our kids are going to be taken captive and Jesus is like, or God to them, which actually you could, I guess you could make a case for it being Jesus in a sense here. Uh, he says to them, hey, no, these little ones who you thought would be taken as plunder, they will actually enter the land. Bottom line, um, everyone who enters the land isn't by default a little one. So you can't really make this case for 20 years of age being the age of accountability. Plus, like this just strikes me and most of us as being ridiculous to think like a 19-year-old man who has a kid or two and who mur commits murder that he has like no accountability before God. Um, no, I don't think that this is wise. I don't think it's true. I don't think it's accurate. Yeah, they clearly know right from wrong. Now, others would say the age is a, a bar mitzvah. It's, it's when a person hits the age of 12. That's in the Jewish culture when the bar mitzvah happens. And here I want to caution us against too easily just grabbing things in Jewish culture and just throwing them onto our theology. This is something that is a, a habit amongst those who get into studying Judaism and understanding rabbinic literature and stuff like that. We, there's a tendency to put way too much weight on, on what's going on in Judaism. Jesus kind of makes it clear in the New Testament that just because the Jews are doing it doesn't mean that it's part of scripture. It doesn't mean it's evil either, right? It just does, don't, don't project Jewish traditions onto scripture as though they're giving you a theological grid for understanding things. So I think instead, when we look at the case from last week, what we find is the age of accountability isn't an age. It's more of like a moment, a time of accountability. And it's based not on how old you are. It's based on what you know. And if it's based on what you know, it will be individual for every person. At one point, someone hits this moment of accountability. God knows in their God knows their heart and mind. He knows exactly the moment when they are accountable for their sin issues. And he holds them accountable at that exact moment. Now, this just means that people are unique. And you, you can't put an exact age on it for anybody. Plus, for someone who's mentally handicapped, it may be that they hit this much later. Or perhaps they never hit this. I mean, God knows. I don't know the person's heart. So it's unique to each individual. But uh, one, one uh, Christian teacher brought up a problem with this. And they said, the problem is that we're saying there's a moment where they're accountable, yet we see that as people, and again, we're in conjecture territory here, 
As people age, it's not like they suddenly one day wake up and they have full moral awareness. And the day before, they had no moral awareness. Yet we're kind of saying you're suddenly totally accountable and yesterday you weren't. And I think that that's true. I think we are saying that. But what it misses is this. While we grow gradually aware, there is some point at which God does make you accountable. He says, I'm going to hold you accountable for what you know now. Now, here's what I want to add to that. That even though you've entered the realm of accountability, like you've gone from not accountable to accountable, within this section, this realm of accountability, it's measured. It's, it's not that everyone's equally accountable. They're accountable based upon what their level of knowledge is in that realm, how much they knew, what awareness they had of right and wrong. Um, everything is totally weighed and measured by God. Jesus kind of makes it clear too how those whom he went to who saw him face to face and rejected him, <clears throat> they had a greater sin. They had a greater, in that realm of accountability, their accountability went up even higher because they had reject, rejected face to face the coming of Jesus Christ. So the more truth we reject, the higher our accountability. So yes, you, you suddenly jump into the realm of accountability, but it's measured by God perfectly. Everything you knew, everything you didn't know, um, all the opportunities you had, deceit, knowledge, all that stuff is factored by God. So we don't know what the exact time is for each person. We don't need to know. I mean, it's not like I'm the judge. I don't, I don't need to know. But there seems to be a moment of accountability. And I think that the, I think that the, uh, the application of this for Christian parents is that you're going to be teaching your kids about Jesus from the very beginning. I mean, that just doesn't change anything. Of course, I want to teach you about Christ and about the knowledge of God from the, from the, the very beginning. I don't want to delay anything as though I'm somehow saving you. God knows what you're accountable for. So what about sin nature? Let's tackle our second issue, our second question today. Uh, some people might think that saying that all infants are saved or that all, in, all, all infants are unaccountable that as, a, as a class of people and those like them, that this causes a problem related to sin nature because they haven't had their sin nature dealt with. So we're effectively bringing people with sinful nature into the kingdom of God. And so they're like, this is a problem, Mike. You know, you need to deal with sin nature. And I'm going to share a couple different views on sin nature here. And we're going to get into a bit of theological weeds. But for some of us, this is, this is an enjoyable journey. And, and there are a lot of you who are still with me today already. Uh, you're probably those who enjoy this kind of thing. So there is the Augustinian doctrine of sin nature. This is like what Augustine taught uh, back in the day. He, he promoted this idea of sin nature that has, was pretty much adopted and, and solidified in Catholicism, but also uh, most Calvinists, I think, would hold to this doctrine of sin nature, and a lot, of, a lot of people do. Now, this view of sin nature is that when Adam sinned, when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, that basically you, you sinned too. Like you actually are from the time of your conception, you're, you're actually guilty of having actually committed sin already. And that's my understanding of this, of this doctrine. It gets a bit hairy, but I think that that would be a good summary of it, a fair summary of it. It's as though babies have personally sinned and are then guilty. Um, I, now, now this is, I don't actually think that this is accurate. I, I, I think that this is an incorrect view of sin nature. I think sin nature is a real thing. I'm, I'm not Pelagian, um, for those who are worried about that. Uh, but I think that this particular view is, is wrong. And I think that there's an element of this in the scripture in Deuteronomy 139. It's like they have no knowledge of good or evil, right? They've, they've got no culpability. And yet this doctrine seems to be based upon giving them that culpability. So uh, on the side note, it may have been partially based on a mistranslation in the Latin translation of, the, of Romans chapter 5, that was just a mistranslation, which is why when you read the, the catechism, I have the catechism over here. When you read the catechism of the Catholic Church, they quote the Latin Vulgate to support their understanding of sin nature. But I'm like, what translation is this? And I, I, you could look at it, whether you can evaluate the Greek or just use a number of English translations, you'll see that this is, seems to be a mistranslation. At any rate, if you do hold this view, let's say you have the Augustinian doctrine, uh, this is not a problem. Um, Kids are saved by Jesus. That's the whole point. The whole point here is that Jesus is their savior. He does, God, they, don't, they don't go to heaven by right of their holiness and godliness. They go to heaven by the rescue of their savior, Jesus Christ. So that sin nature issue is not really a problem. It's not a problem at all. And for if you think sin nature is a problem with infant salvation, I, I think that you're confused. There is a problem though. And the problem is this, and this is why Augustine, he would actually say that infants went, to, if they died, they went to hell uh, most of them anyways. And here's the reason why. And I think he was totally wrong, obviously. I have a whole video on that. But the reason why he thought they went to hell is because they weren't baptized. 
he thought infants that weren't baptized would go to hell because at that point, Augustine and, and many following after him thought that baptism was necessary for salvation. And more than that, they thought baptism specifically removed original sin. So if I'm baptized, original sin is taken away. Now, I don't have a salvific view of baptism. I don't have that kind of view, and I don't think that's biblical. And I've had discuss- I've had a whole debate on the topic that's <laughs> like four hours long. If you really want to watch it, you can. But, um, but yeah, this is, this is not a salvific issue. So if, if you think that baptism is necessary for salvation, you're going to struggle with what to do with babies. If you don't think it's necessary, sin nature is not a problem, right? Because you think God, by his grace through Christ, forgives us and removes our sin nature. It's not a baptism thing. This was the old popular Catholic teaching, though, um, was the babies could not enter into heaven. It's changed over time. I'll give you a little historical survey here um, since I've been studying a lot of Catholicism recently. But baptism is necessary for salvation in Catholic doctrine. And even now, this is a big issue. There's a big battle going on. Modern Catholics will say, babies, babies are probably in heaven. You don't have to believe they're in limbo. But if you go back like 100 years, just about every Catholic would think there's no babies in heaven unless they were baptized. If they're not baptized, they're simply not in heaven. And I'm not making this up. Um, in the Baltimore Catechism in the, 19, in the 1960s, this was the standard text for teaching from the church from, for teaching Catholicism to your family and to your parish, the Baltimore Catechism, it says, and I'm going to quote it to you, a person such as infants who have not committed actual sin and who through no fault of theirs die without baptism cannot enter heaven. And so that was the doctrine. It wasn't about sin nature. It was directly, it was about baptism. So they thought they can't enter heaven because of the baptism issue. This goes back to the Council of Florence. Here's what's considered an infallible proclamation by the, in the Council of Florence from 1493. I'll read it to you. And keep in mind, if an infant's not baptized under Catholic theology, they still have original sin. Okay, so it says, uh, Moreover, the souls of those who depart in actual mortal sin or in original sin only, that would be infants who are not baptized, they descend immediately into hell, but to undergo punishments of different kinds. Now, I would say that there has been a radical change in Catholic theology uh, since then. And now, popes now say, we've never made an infallible proclamation about what happens to infants. Although I'm reading the Council of Florence, and it looks like it makes an infallible proclamation about infants. But they say they have never made one. And now, the Catechism of the Catholic Church presently, it says that they have uh, permission to hope for the salvation of infants. It doesn't say they're in heaven. It says they know of no other way other than baptism for them to get rid of original sin. But... God's not limited by the things we know. He could go beyond the means of baptism if he wants to. So you're allowed to hope they're in heaven. And so that's a, a change that's taken place. But you can see why sin nature becomes a question. It's really about baptism, though. It's not about sin nature. So yeah, the Augustinian view, you can affirm that and you can affirm that they're in heaven. If you have a baptismal salvation view, then you need to struggle with that. I, uh, I don't have that view at all. <laughs> and I would argue against it. So... Um, what if you have a a different view of sin nature? Another view of sin nature is that not that we are personally guilty as though we have sinned, but rather we're born with sinful inclinations. We're sinfully inclined. And so in that sense, we are sinful, but without the ability to have to express this sin, you have no personal guilt yet. And that would be my understanding of it. And so the infants are sinfully inclined, but no personal guilt yet because they have not even the awareness or capability to express these things. So if God rescues them at that state, he delivers them from their sin nature, the solution is Jesus saves them. So sin nature is not a problem for this view. Not at all. Uh, unless you believe in the necessity of baptism, then you've got to, some things you have to struggle with. Now, what role does Jesus, our next question, what role does Jesus have in their salvation, in the salvation of infants? Do they really need Jesus? Well, um, it should be obvious from what I've said so far. The answer is absolutely they need Jesus. This is just a misunderstanding. I saw in the comment section a few times in the last video, so I want to bring it up today. If if, if I'm saying that they don't have personal acts of sin and that they have no actual rejection of God, does that mean that I'm saying infants are holy and that they deserve to be in heaven by nature of their goodness? And the answer is no, because the reason they have no personal acts of sin is because they don't have the ability to sin. The reason why they don't reject God is because they don't have the awareness of God yet that will come naturally that through creation and through God's revelation. They don't have that awareness yet. So they're not guilty of sinning and rejecting God, but they will head down that path. That's the path they're heading down in their sinful uh, state. So do they just enter heaven because of their goodness? No, um, they're different than Jesus. He, here's an example of someone who enters heaven because of his goodness. That's Jesus, right? 
He was tempted and sinless. Well, they're not yet tempted and they're certainly not sinless in that sense of a positive holiness. They're not loving God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. They don't love anything. They don't know anything. Given time, they will fail. So what does Jesus save them from? He saves them from the fall. He saves them from their sin nature. That is their sinful inclinations, the proclivity to sin, from future personal acts of sin they would commit had they lived longer. He saves them from death. They're still suffering under that death and that corruption that all of creation has fallen into since, since the, uh, the fall. They're also made children of God by adoption through Jesus Christ. And they have no right to be called children of God simply by birth. This is, this is all salvation offered through Christ uh, to them. So they're absolutely saved by Jesus. By Jesus. And if you, if you think saying you're not accountable for your sin means you don't need Jesus, that's, that's just a misunderstanding. It's understandable, but it's a misunderstanding. All right, let's, let's tackle the next question. This is our fourth question, and this is probably the one I'll spend the longest time on. What about free will? And I have spent a lot of time on this topic. <laughs> um, saying that all infants are saved raises some questions. So let's say we are talking about a billion individuals here. I'm just throwing a random number out so we can discuss it here. Let's say we're talking about a billion individuals who they, they all just happen to choose God. If you say they have free will, right? If they have free will, they all just happen to choose God. Every one of them always chooses God. And that admittedly seems a bit odd because so many of their adult counterparts don't choose God. And so you, you're like, well, you got some splaining to do, right? Like, why is it that all this class of people will choose God, yet if they, it seems like if they grew up, then we have a different proportion of choosing God. Now, if you say that they lack free will, if your solution is, well, they're actually lacking free will, this seems to cause another issue. It seems odd because there, there seems to be a, a desire for free will, that God desires for us to make our free will choices. And that free will, in some, some people would say free will is necessary for us to have the best kind of like love relationship with God, that we've got to have some measure of free will. And I'm, I'm inclined to agree with that. And so, yeah, what if they lack free will? And what are you saying? There's like a whole bunch of people that have like a lesser love relationship with God. So here we go. This is conjecture warning again. How you answer this question of free will does not change the fact that the New Testament and the Old Testament seem to, the weight of them seem to push us towards thinking every single individual baby is going to be going to heaven when they die. That is the weight. And this is us working out the implications of that teaching. Many people, they, they go, I don't know how to work out the implications, so I'm going, to reject, I'm going to reject that conclusion. And I think that that's wrongheaded because we're not getting there through our perfect systematic theology. We're getting there from the simple teaching of Scripture, and then we're going to work it out into our theology secondhand. And I think we should separate those steps. So um, why is it that they should make a choice? Um, well, some people would say it keeps free will for each person in heaven. We want to have that. And that it wouldn't be the best kind of love. Um, or it may not be love at all, some people might suggest. And others have a problem of evil, like what's called a theodicy or a way of explaining why God allows evil in the world that involves free will. And so then they think they have to give every human free will, not just certain humans or a lot of humans, but everyone. But setting that aside for a moment, let me explore some no free will options for you, okay? Here's a category, a, a, like three solutions where you say, Infants, ultimately, they die, they get saved, but they don't have a free will choice about their salvation. They make other choices, they just don't make a free will choice about their salvation. And the number one option here is going to be the Calvinist option. And the Calvinist response, I'll tell you what, Calvinists have it easy on this question. This is why, like, uh, John MacArthur or why Charles Spurgeon or why different, even Calvin would affirm infant salvation. I think Calvin would affirm it for all infants. Um, I believe he would strongly have affirmed that at the time. So they don't make a free will choice. And this is just consistent with Calvinism in general. Calvinism in general, people often don't get this. They talk about Calvinism all day and don't realize one of the central issues is that they think that regeneration precedes faith. In every case, everybody who's saved, that God makes you born again, he changes your inner person, he saves you, and then you have faith in him. They think that before regeneration, you cannot trust in Christ. You cannot respond in faith to God. But they think after regeneration, after God by his spirit regenerates you, you can't help but believe in God. So this is, these are the, of the, the tulip, the doctrines of Calvinism. This is the, the T for total depravity. You can't believe in God until after he regenerates you. And that's irresistible grace. 
you can't help but believe in God because his grace is now irresistible to you or because you're born again, you're going to believe. Now, the thing is, this actually makes it really easy to reconcile infant salvation with the rest of your theology because on Calvinism, you're just going to say, well, they're all elect. I mean, God can elect anybody he wants. He chooses to elect all infants because the weight of scripture seems to push that direction. So Calvinists have like the easiest way out. So, um, yeah, I think it's the easiest one. Now, if you're going to say I from compatibilism, Mike, and that's a different issue, I'm not going to get into that. Um, so forgive me, but now you may not have to be a Calvinist to actually affirm the same free will option in a different fashion. So here's a non-Calvinist version of this that I think you could affirm. And, um, I may lean this way. This may be the way I lean currently. I keep changing my mind on things here, but you may not have to be a Calvinist because you can say simply this babies are the exception to the rule. They're not, it's not the standard way God saves people, regeneration preceding faith. That's not normally what God does. I think the scripture seems to indicate that. That's my belief. But God, in the case of babies, he just chooses for them. And if you're going to say, well, why does God choose for babies but doesn't choose for the rest of us? He allows us to choose. Why is it that he doesn't, I mean, he makes a choice, but he gives us a choice as well. Why does he do that? And I think the answer is, well, because they're children. I mean, we generally do this for kids. We, we make decisions for kids all the time. In fact, we would consider it the abandonment of proper parenthood if you don't make choices for your kids that are good and in their best interests, right? When, when you decide what your kid's going to eat, you don't just even let them pick what they're inclined to eat, what their sin nature would have them eat. You just give them, you know, what's good for them, what's healthy for them. You make sure that they're taken care of. When they want to stay up all late all night, you, you make them go to bed. We make decisions for kids all the time. And we recognize that because they're children, this is not a violation Right? This is just proper stewardship and love towards those kids. Whereas if they're adults, then it becomes manipulation, then it becomes a negative thing, then it becomes a wrong thing to make those choices for other people. And so, yeah, we, we can actually just affirm that the same thing we see every day in our lives, we apply to how God works his salvation in the lives of children. They're children. God chooses for them. They're the exception to that rule. They can't choose, so he chooses for them and he saves them. And I'm, I'm okay with that. Um, I know people who think I shouldn't be, uh, but I'm okay with that. I think this is probably the direction I would go. Here's the third option, a third no free will option. If you don't like the Calvinist response or you don't, you're not inclined to hold to my, they're the exception to the rule, and I think that that's the way normal life is, then you have this third option, which I don't care for, but I'll just talk it, talk it through with you because this is, again, theological conjecture. We're allowed to just say, what if, in some cases. Okay, so the other theory is they're forever infants. They never stop being infants. And this would mean that they never make a choice about God because they never develop the capacity to choose. They just stay in an infant state after they die. So they're in heaven, but they're never mature enough, even in eternal life, to make decisions about those types of things. So the free will question just never comes up in their eternity. They're in relationship with God because they've got him inside them, dwelling within them, united to them the same way every saved person does. They're, they're given this tight, intimate relationship with God. And now some would say, well, you know, complaints, here's a bad complaint against this view. You can't really have a relationship with a baby. That's not a real relationship. That's not a real relationship, Mike. And I'm like, well, I mean, have you had a baby? You think you have no relationship with this baby? That's silly. I, I really think that's silly. Um, yeah, there is a real relationship between a father and his newborn baby. There is a real relationship between a mother and her unborn baby. That's a real relationship. Is it the same quality as a relationship with an adult? No, it's not. But is it real? Yes. It's a real relationship. And is it valuable? Oh, it's immensely valuable. It's immeasurably valuable. So I wouldn't argue against this view that way. Um, and the relationship God can have with babies would be even more intense and more intimate than a parent can have with a child because he, through his Holy Spirit, indwells believers in, and in would indwell them, indwell them as they are experiencing the benefits of salvation. So it's an intimate connection on a much deeper level than a parent could even have with a child. So I think there's a real relationship, but I'm going to push back on this view that they're forever infants in a couple ways. First off, if these babies get new bodies, which seems to be part of what salvation means, like part of what eternal life is, salvation's eternal life, right? And part of eternal life is getting a new body. Let me, let me actually share with you a scripture on this. This is in second Corinthians five, four. And here's why I wouldn't one reason why I wouldn't take the eternal nursery view or the view that they always stay infants. For indeed, while we were in this tent, that was talking about his physical body, Paul, he's talking about his, his tent, his body. We groan being burdened because we do not want to be unclothed, 
We don't want to be unclothed. Being unclothed would be him having no body at all. He doesn't want that. That's considered, now that's what we're theorizing here for infants. It's like they've got no body. But to be clothed, he wants to get a, a new body so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life so that he can then experience the full eternal life that is coming his way. My point here is that our eternal life is connected to a new body that we get. There's a, new, there's a physicality of the eternal life and we're going to be experiencing that. Now, if you affirm that babies get a new body, just like adults get a new body, it makes the eternal nursery view very hard to hold because I arbitrarily make babies continue to suffer the results of the fall in underdeveloped and never developed capabilities and capacities while I restore everybody else to, to their fullness of, of being like Christ in the resurrection sense. I mean, think of it this way. If someone has dementia and they die of old age, I don't think that their resurrected body has dementia. I know I, I fully and rightly expect that all results of the fall, all results of corruption are gone and that they're restored into a fullness and a maturity. It's weird to arbitrarily deny that to children. I would give it to everyone else, but not to children, seemingly just to avoid the, the topic of free will. And so I think that we're, we're getting out on a limb. We're getting out way too far on a limb with that particular issue. So let me talk now about do make a choice options. Um, I, those are, I give you three no free will options. I'm going to give you some free will options on what we might say about babies who die. And let me know you guys your feedback. I don't usually do this kind of conjecture type stuff with theology. And I'm curious on how it impacts you. I hope it's a positive thing. I hope it's not negative in some sense and that it's a benefit to you. But here, let's talk about the do make a choice options. Uh, one of the, they do make a choice options, which I'll throw out as a possibility. Although I think that, um, I think my friend Tim Stratton would say that this is, this doesn't work <laughs> as I was talking to, he's the free will guy. And he was like, Mike, that's, that's not really free will, but I'm going to throw it out there for us to think about, which is the, that God, he initially decides for babies. He saves them as I'm favorable to that view. And then as they mature, which they will grow in maturity, especially with the giving of a new body, at least by the time the resurrection comes, a new body, boom, instant maturity. Um, now it doesn't mean they know everything, but there's a, all the capacities are suddenly there. And so at least at that point, now they all, here's this theory, they all say yes to God. They all affirm God. They all want God. And the reason they do, the reason they do is because they're in this beautiful, wonderful environment. They've been delivered from three things. I'm going to say this quick, even though I've given this a lot of thought. Uh, sin nature, that's gone. The, the old body's gone. The old flesh is done away with. They're delivered from the influence of the world. And they're delivered from the influence of the devil. So the world, the flesh, and the devil, those three things, they're all gone. And they're in God's presence and they're experiencing his glory. So, of course, they say yes. Now, one could call this irresistible grace, but I don't, I don't think that's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying that just simply by nature of their regenerated self, they have to say yes to God. Rather, I'm saying they could, you know, it's possible for them to reject God, but they just won't because they're experiencing his wonderfulness at that point and delivered from other influences. So they end up all choosing him. Uh, now, some would say this is not, I'm, I'm just making stuff up and that's fine. A lot of these answers are actually kind of just saying, what about this? Does that fit with my current theology? Mm, it seems to, I'm going to go with that answer. And I don't think that's exactly bad. What you're doing is you're taking what you do know and trying to use it to help answer what you don't know. And that's all I'm trying to help you guys do today. Now, there's another response, which will be the, and we're getting really into the weeds. You might want to like pause the video, take a five minute walk and then come back because we're going to talk about Molinism. And so the Molinist view um, is, is different. Let me, let me just, I'll say it and then I'll explain it and then I'll say it again. Because for those who haven't heard this before, it is like, wait, wait, what? You can totally get it. You're smart enough. It's just a, it's just a weird idea. You got to hear it twice. So it goes like this. God has so ordered the world with his providence, with his planning, his meticulous planning, that while they could choose to reject him, infants who die and then, then experience his salvation uh, after death, while he, they, he, they could reject him. He makes sure that the persons who are killed in infancy are just the souls that would accept him and freely choose to know and love him when they do encounter him. So God just has orchestrated the world in a way that those who do die in infancy are only the souls who will end up receiving him. Now, initially, this will strike you as being like, well, that sounds really made up, Mike. And in reality, it I mean, it, all these answers are, are made up in a sense. It doesn't mean they're false. We're, we're theorizing. They're all theories. They're like, hmm, 
what about this theory? Let me throw that against the rest of my theology and see if it sticks. <laughs> That's kind of what we're doing. So the Molinist view is like this. And you don't have to be a full-on Molinist, but if you believe in something called middle knowledge or God's awareness of um, all the... Basically, God is, God is... There's a difference between God controlling everything and God being sovereign over everything. My view is God is sovereign over everything, even though he is not controlling every single thing. So when you decided to click this video, you just you chose that, but God knew you would. And he planned the whole universe with that knowledge in his mind. He knew who would receive the gospel, who would reject the gospel. And I think we can talk about God's meticulous planning with a lot of scripture. Let me give you just a couple examples. In Acts 4.28, and I'm going to read this, and I want you to think about how meticulously God had to plan out the universe in order to get Acts 4.28 to happen. This is where uh, Peter the Apostle is, is talking. He's actually praying. He's talking to God. And he talks about the, the death of Christ. He says, Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. Look at all these different characters and groups that are gathered together against Jesus. But look at what he affirms about it. To do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. They gathered. They had their plans, but you had your plan. And so... My understanding of this is that what God did was he just has orchestrated the world. He so ordered the world and planned everything out that when he got the ball rolling, he knew that it would result in Pontius Pilate and Herod and the Jews and the Gentiles gathering together to go against Christ, that he'd be crucified with a crown of thorns, with a robe, with, with between two criminals, that it would be on this exact day at that exact time in this exact location for these exact reasons. All of that was planned out. The mob response to Jesus was planned out by God. Because God meticulously planned all the details, not violating man's free will in those things, but in planning in all that he knew man would do and choose. Ephesians 1.11, it talks about this, that our salvation, we've obtained an inheritance having been predestined according to his purpose. And this is actually, I want you to see this. Ephesians 1.11, according to the purpose of God who what works all things after the counsel of his will. God works all things together according to his plans and his agendas. What I'm suggesting is that God didn't just meticulously plan the crucifixion. He has meticulously planned everything. Very different than saying God causes everything. We're just saying he plans everything. There's a big difference there. I won't try to get into all of it today. But Matthew 10, 29 gives us another example. Jesus himself says, are not two sparrows sold for a cent? In other words, they're cheap. Sparrows are cheap. In the system of sacrifices, in Israel, like sparrows were like the cheap sacrifice for the poor people. And they're like, hey, you can't afford the normal sacrifice here. Just do sparrows. And so he's like, they're like the cheap things, right? The throwaways. And yet not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. That God's intentions and plans and thoughts involve even the, get this, the random death of lesser importance animals. That that's part of God's meticulous preparation. And it may seem mindless. When you see like a skunk on the side of the road that got hit by a truck, it may seem like that has no purpose in God's plan, but you're, you're actually wrong. God's meticulously planning everything out. Now, if God is so meticulously planning the world, it raises the probability that he has meticulously planned that every single person who dies will be a person who would receive him when they encounter him. So that we can actually affirm real free will and God's selectiveness in creating the world so that all the babies who die end up being saved. That would be the Molinist response. I, I hope I've explained it well. Um, my philosophy friends will, uh, maybe, maybe they'll let me know. <laughs> That's, that, that is, I think, I think that's a pretty good explanation of it. And I hope it made sense to you guys. Now this brings up another issue. See with the free will options, there aren't as many, as many options, as many varieties of options for it, but it brings up another issue, which is, okay, if they make a choice, when do babies make this decision? When do those who die in infancy make the decision to know God? Um, and this, we're getting really out there into conjecture, but I want to tackle this because it does come up and I've heard people debating it and I think it's worth talking about. So some would say um, instantly at, at death, they make the choice right then. Now there's, there's a way to defend this, that babies, they don't need to be matured. They don't need to grow up. They don't need a new body. They don't need anything to change about them to make a decision to know God. God effectively, it's, it's like a, it's like a, and, and this may be the case. It's, it's just a decision they make, um, 
in a, in a lesser capacity. They don't have as much of a capacity to choose God, but they do choose him. As he embraces them, as he reveals his love to them, they respond positively to it, and that's their decision to receive Christ. There's not a huge mental awareness that's going on of all the dynamics of sin and salvation and all that, but Jesus is rescuing them, and they're receiving him. And, and perhaps on some level, that's exactly what happens. That may be the case. I'm not sure. Um, another view would be that God actually enables them. So God gives them a special enablement because of their lack of awareness, because of their lack of reasoning, and he empowers them with a certain amount of reasoning so that they can make a choice right away. Others would say, and here's where it gets tricky, that babies actually mature later. They mature in the a after death. They mature at some point later, and then they make a choice. Now, there's two options here that are preferred, typically. Uh, one is that the, the kids are in heaven, they're saved, and they're already saved, and as they develop awareness, they affirm or ratify that salvation with a choice to trust God, and they all choose to trust him, um, in that, either because of environment or because of like the Molinist view of God controlling who it is that passes away, what souls die. The other option is that they are kept out of heaven until they make a choice. And this is where things get problematic, in my opinion. And I don't, I don't hold this view, and I don't think you should. <laughs> but I'll share. Let's work through it a little bit. Basically, we're saying, like, babies die, but they don't go to heaven right away. They go somewhere else, and they make a later choice. Some would say that's in some sort of nebulous testing ground. Like, it's not heaven. It's not hell. It's like some other location. Um, it's not. This isn't the Catholic doctrine of limbo anymore. This is a different view. And... I think that this doesn't work um, for a few reasons. Heaven seems better than creating this new location that the Bible doesn't talk about. The Bible doesn't mention this place. For a few reasons, I prefer heaven for them. One, I think heaven and hell are legit. Two, I don't want to make up new locations without scripture clearly showing me that they exist. When you have to make up a location, a new spiritual place, plane, in order to, you know, justify your conclusions elsewhere, I think that that's problematic. Um, we know hell is ruled out. That is the most clear thing in scripture is hell's ruled out for babies. Heaven's the only option left. If that's all you have, then I think you have a good case that they're in heaven. Uh, plus you have David's hope, you have Job's preference, you have the rest terminology in the scripture, all that stuff I went over last week. So another option is this. Okay, I won't invent a place. I'll take a, I'll take a time period and a location that the Bible does talk about and I'll put babies there. And that would be the millennium. So for those who are premillennial, like myself, there's going to be this thousand, we believe there's going to be a thousand year reign of Christ on earth. And they'll say, well, maybe that's when the babies are brought back and they live in this physical reign of Christ on earth. And that's when they make their choice to follow God. There are some problems, just like the problems we had before is I'm just making this up. Like I, I'm, I'm literally just throwing them back into a second life experience without any good, solid biblical reason to do so. I don't think. Also, this seems to be like reincarnation. I mean, I, I'm effectively bringing reincarnation into my theology at this point, And I do have a few hesitations doing something like that. And I think you should as well, right? Because it's the same soul, but it's a different body. That's just, that is just reincarnation. It also quickly leads you to thinking that many of them may reject God. And, and on that scenario, many of them might reject God. But I think the scenario is fabricated, artificial, unsupported, and conflicts with all the biblical data that shows that these babies are going to be with the Lord and we're going to expect to see them in heaven. Just think like if David thought that he was going to see his son again, how does that work with the idea that his son's going to get reincarnated in the millennium? I mean, David, when is David going to see his son? He's going to be separated from him. The son gets reincarnated at some later date, so many generations later, and then he lives a life where he might reject God. Like this just, this conflicts with the biblical data. That's all I'm saying. So I, I would reject that view. Um, <clears throat> personally, I lean towards the idea that God chooses for them, or perhaps the, the Molinist view, um, which, which would be based upon our preconceived notions. And your view here is probably based on what you already believe. And you're just trying to sort of fill in the, the, the gaps of what you don't know, using the principles of what you do know. And there's nothing wrong with that. I just don't want it to be completely ad hoc. I don't want it to be totally made up. I want it to be supported with scripture as much as possible. And now let's take our last question. Here's our last question. Our last question is, is abortion now okay? <clears throat> and I, we shouldn't be surprised <coughs> to have this particular issue come up. Is abortion now okay? Um, effectively, we're saying everybody who dies in infancy goes to heaven. So can we just kill people when, as babies and say, look, I made sure they went to heaven. So I did a good thing. I think the Bible answers this question pretty directly. First off, let's look at 
Psalm 106 verses 38 and 40 through 40. Verse 38, here we go. Now the phrase innocent blood here is talking about the blood of children that were sacrificed to false gods. So this is a great example. God actually is reacting to the murder of those who are not accountable. He's reacting to it in the Old Testament. And to see how God feels about those who would kill the innocent, it's, it's, it's freakish that I have to answer this question, but that's the culture we live in. Let's look at this verse. It says, Psalm 106, 38, that they shed innocent blood, the blood of their sons and their daughters, whom they sacrificed to the idols of Canaan, and the land was polluted with the blood. Thus it became unclean in their practices. They became unclean in their practices and played the harlot in their deeds. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against his people and he abhorred his inheritance. God was disgusted and hateful. Hateful about what they were doing to their kids. He's not like, well, don't worry, I saved them, so it's okay for you to kill them. I mean, this is certainly not God's view. In fact, depending on what view you take, um, you may have to view abortion as being even worse than before. Because let's say you, you take the Molinist view. What you've done when you've committed an abortion is you've killed somebody who would believe in Christ, would have served Christ, would have loved Christ, would have honored God with their life. And so that in this case, every death of a baby is the death of one who would have loved the Lord, if that's, if that's the direction you go. This may make things actually worse as a result. Um, in, in the Bible, it's definitely worse, but it's worse because they're innocent. It's worse because they don't des deserve it. God's attitude towards it is pretty clear. The Bible seems to address this sort of thinking in Romans 3.8. Or is it? Yeah, 3.8. This verse, I mean, you can be written exactly to the person who's trying to justify abortion. Romans 3, 8, and why not say, as we are slanderously reported, and as some claim that we say, let us do evil, that good may come. And what is God's attitude? Their condemnation is just. If you think, well, this justifies abortion, that just, I mean, I think that the life of the mother is the only situation where we could have a justified abortion because you're going to lose two lives, so you're saving one. You're effectively saving one life instead of losing two when it, when it is a true life of the mother situation. But when you're like, well, mental health issues or, or, or rape or incest or um, she's just not ready and it's a woman's right to choose, I think that your condemnation is just. I think you're doing, you're doing a, a, an evil thing and your condemnation is just. This is, this is bigger than the race issue that everybody's very aware of right now. Well, this is an issue we should be even more aware of. Abortion is uh, murder. I don't know any way around it. And for those who think, well, but and I've, I've seen pro-abortion people come up with the craziest justifications you could ever hear for abortion. One guy argued with me all day long about how a woman can have an abortion because she um, is just refusing the use of her organs to somebody other than her. And I'm, I'm the fact that you have to try to explain why it's not okay to kill a baby in the name of refusing the use of your organs it shows the depravity of our culture and the sickness in our society. And God who gave us moral awareness, it, it holds us accountable to it, right? Our condemnation is just if we try to come up with, you know, ways to make it good. Abortion supporters always have lots of excuses and scenarios. And this is not one that works. Not one at all. Simply not your place. So finally, um, I'll say this, some conclusions here on, on this whole two-part series on the topic of um, uh, infant salvation is God's God. It's not up to you. None of this is up to us. God's right. He knows better than us. And he's going to do what's right. And it's a totally okay if you don't get what he's doing. That's completely all right. You trust the Lord and you should. But it's really encouraging that there is such a strong case for the salvation of infants. And whether or not you know how to work that together with all of your theology, I think we have some really good solutions here. But whether or not you do, it's really awfully encouraging to my heart to see God just rescuing and rescuing and rescuing. So a real quick reminder Seven of the points I made in the previous video was this. Because if, you're, if you go, Mike, I'm just not convinced. I've heard people say, I'm just not convinced. And that's okay. You don't have to be. But I have a challenge for you. If, you. if you're not convinced by my case for infant salvation, here's my challenge. Make a better case for an alternate view. And keep in mind, here's some of the points that I made in favor of my case. So you can test your case against it. Um, one, infants are not morally aware and therefore they are not accountable. That's clearly affirmed in scripture. There should be no debate. Number two, specific examples exist in the Bible that show that infants do not deserve judgment 
even when their parents do. That is hugely significant if you're going to have some other theory on this. Number three, the way that people are judged and sent to hell, as we read about in Revelation or in other locations in Scripture, it just can't apply to kids because of their moral awareness. It's obvious kids don't apply in that category. Hell is ruled out. Number four, David's response to losing his son, the best explanation would include supporting the idea that he's going to see him in and be in fellowship with him in a glorious afterlife. That's the best explanation. If you, if you want to say you're not sure, give me your better explanation. Don't just say you're not sure. Number five, if we don't have good reason to invent new locations for babies, you should believe that they're in heaven because they can't be in hell. So unless you're going to invent new locations that scripture doesn't invent, which seems you're going way too off on the deep end. Number six, God's desire to save all is consistent with the salvation of infants. Just the heart of God. Combine all this with just God's very heart for salvation and say, well, it seems like he would. And number seven, God restores all of creation through Christ. All of creation suffered unwillingly because of the fall. All creation was subject to bondage because of the, the ultimate plan of God. And I think it's consistent that God will rescue babies and the unaware, just like he rescues trees and the hills and recreates all things through Christ. That's Romans chapter eight. I think other views seem forced and they cannot offer such a strong biblical case. And so I ask you to change your mind if you disagree. Yeah, but don't just be like, well, I'm on the fence. Find a better view. If you can't, then, then this should be your default position, in my opinion. And it offers great comfort to parents and great comfort to people. And I'm very encouraged at the strength of the biblical case. And how you answer all these other questions I dealt with today, that, that may seem ad hoc. Um, and that's okay because you're, you're kind of like making up... Um, you're, you're, you're not just making stuff up, rather you're really working to, to the unknown from the known. And that's a natural, understandable way to do things. You're answering questions you don't know the answers to based on the ones you do understand. Ultimately, though, God will do what's right. And uh, if you like this, let me know if this has been a, a fruitful video. Do you prefer, do you, I, I actually stay away from the idea of just the conjecture where I go, could be this, could be that. I'm really not sure in my view. I don't normally do that. If you find this fruitful and not disturbing, then let me know. I, I'm really being serious here. Put it in the comment section. I appreciate your guys' feedback. I just want to understand the kind of benefit that this sort of survey into a topic of with with layers of uncertainty, I want to understand that impact that it has on, on you as a believer. My goal, my hope is that it helps you to learn to think biblically. How you put up an idea and you kind of like poke at it with scripture to go, hmm, does that seem consistent with scripture? And then do that with another idea. That would be really the goal of this is training you up in that. And don't forget the Mark series. And we're going to continue next week, probably the same time, probably Monday at, at, at uh, 2 p.m. Pacific Standard Time for the live stream. We'll probably continue then. And we'll do the Rich Young Ruler. And we'll talk about that. That's continuing the Mark series as we learn how to think biblically about everything. Otherwise, Lord bless you guys. Thank you so much for those of you who are supporting this ministry. Um, I'm, I'm just constantly brought joy with that. And oh, and I'll, I'll offer a quick announcement. Um, I'm now officially hiring. We're in the process, but we're hiring um, Sarah Zimmerman, who's going to be like a, a, like an personal assistant, I guess, for this ministry. She's going to be doing all kinds of stuff behind the scenes. If you've been emailing the past couple of months, you've been dealing with her because I just can't keep up with it all. But we want to still meet the needs. So uh, we can welcome Sarah aboard as the um, uh, first person other than me that's actually like working for this ministry. So, all right. Thank you guys. God bless you. Have a great day. And learn, if nothing else from this video, learn how to say, I can hold, you know, strong confidence in the answers to the clear things in scripture. And then I can have um, some looseness with how I answer the unknowns. And these things don't have to affect each other. I can be a little uncertain about this, but I can have a lot of confidence in this. And that is a healthy way to think about things. All right. God bless you all.